0: Well, welcome to uh, episode eighty-eight of the Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and it's welcome back to the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. How are you, Peter? G'day, Hugh. How are you, mate? Mate, I'm all right. I'm all right. Thanks very much. It's nice to talk to you again. So, what do you make of the march? There are there are certainly um, people who believe, in fact, have an urgent desire for this to be a moment that changes Australia. Um, Changes law, changes practices around sexual assault. Uh, mm. You know, are we in that moment? I,
1: I hope so. Uh, the The issue for the march, I think, is you know obviously what happens next because law reform is really, I think, the most important thing that has to come out of it. The march is about awareness and trying to get a message, I guess, across to the politicians how a lot of people feel, men and women. Uh, And it it had that effect, at least to some extent, you know, with the the numbers that were there, uh, and importantly, with the people that were willing to speak at it as well, uh, and being based in in all different cities around the country, not just in the nation's capital. Uh, But the most important thing for me is that something actually comes out of it in a meaningful policy reform and law reform sense, and that's that's it to be continued, I suppose, with these things. I remember when it was first um, put forward as a petition. Uh, it evolved from there you know the organizers were adding elements to it and you know uh, everyone who attended the march wouldn't necessarily agree with every element in the platform that was delivered Uh, but they would certainly agree with the broader sentiment which is you know the main point there Uh, and the same would go with the people who signed the petition who didn't attend the march for example Um, but that you know what really matters is what comes next
0: So that is the key question then if you if it's about law reform law reform requires governments it requires legislation Uh, do you see any shifting in the mood of this government that shows that they're going to move from the prime minister's rule of law the sense that everything is immutably as it is and must always be uh, into a sense where they where they recognize that uh, they're going to actually have to do the hard work Mm. and Try to find a way to resolve, you know, the, the horrible situation where so many women are sexually assaulted on the evidence that's, that's being presented to us by academics in this field. So few people are ever really truly brought to justice uh, over those crimes, that something must be done through law to, to change that, to narrow that. Is the government showing that it might show some willingness for that now? Has it been brought to the table?
1: I don't get the impression that the government is belligerent about avoiding law reform uh, or avoiding reform. Really? No, not at all. Uh, not remotely, actually. The impression I get is that they're belligerent when it comes to things like, for example, uh, you know, an independent inquiry about Christian Porter, something that I've been in favour of, but is in a sense now a moot point, which we might get to because of his defamation action, uh, at least in the short term. But where I, th- I think they're open to the concept of, of law reform or policy reform, even though it has to be said when the Sex Discrimination Commissioner handed down her 55 recommendations about workplace practice changes when it came to these, these sort, some of these sort of issues, uh, they've enacted, um, you know, four-fifths of nothing as far as that goes. So they've been very and that, slow. And that
0: was they, one of the demands of the petitioners, is, is get on and enact the law.
1: Yeah, oh absolutely. and And that's something that I think there is now more likely to be a move towards purely because the prime minister has little choice when it comes to the politics of this. But I'm, see, I'm, see, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm just, sorry, I'm just, gonna, I'm staggered that you say that you don't think there's any lack of appetite for law reform. I haven't seen it. Where was it? Where's been the speech from the prime minister in which he says, we've got to move on law reform. We've got to change the law around sexual assault. We know it's essentially fundamentally a state-based issue. The, you know, rape and sexual assault, except in the ACT is essentially matters for state-based uh, police forces. Uh, but nevertheless, leadership can come from, Uh, nationally as it does on on so many other matters through COAG and and, and the Attorney-General's, the first law officer meetings around the COAG process, uh, which would have dealt Christian Porter into it. I mean, have I missed the headline saying that they're they're pushing for law reform at the front end of this?
1: I didn't say that they're pushing for it. I just said that I don't think that they're belligerently against it. Uh, Where's the evidence? So they'll be dragged? Well, no, no, I I mean, let's go through it. I think the hard question here is what it might look like, that law reform. I've got some ideas which we can get to. What's what's your idea for how you reform it?
0: Well, I agree with Michael Bradley, who was the lawyer uh, who represented the now deceased woman at the heart of Mm. the allegations that were against... um, uh, Christian Porter, and that he says this is difficult work, it's going to take a lot of work, because plainly any law reform in the issue of sexual assault has to take into account uh, that there are, you know, usually two, sometimes three or more uh, sides to a story, and, mm. that, uh, and that there must be a balance struck between a, a genuine ability of, of, of women, it's going to be predominantly women, but not always exclusively women, uh, who have been victims of sexual assault, uh, you know, getting some justice out of the system, and of course, uh, the long-held rights about presumption of innocence. How does that work? Does it go to balance of
1: probabilities? But, but what? But what's the actual reform? Like, I've I've got a few ideas. I'm keen to go through them, and I don't I don't know if the government's got any ideas yet. will well, but, but you, well, you, you go but through. What's it, at the but top I mean, of what, What's at the top of your list?
0: The, the 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 top of my list is that all the best legal minds in the country should hurry slowly. They should look at the options. They should listen to people. They should put together some stuff. This is a fundamental, key, deep and difficult reform because of all the legal uh, history about it. But, but it has to start from the point that a criminal justice system that works well for murders and for property crime doesn't work for sexual assault.
1: I agree with all of that. I think, I, I think and I do think people recognise that there's a problem here because of the low conviction rates. But what I'm asking is, do you have an idea? because i, I no because i'm not a lawyer no 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 i'm, no, a lawyer, I'm not, not a politician not so, like an academic i'm not having to go at you but my my no, point no, no, is no, I this yeah. this is the point is that there there are few ideas even amongst some of the best legal minds about how to fix this because it is such a profound problem because we recognize that there are so few people who report sexual assaults and we recognize that even when they do so few of them even get Uh, resulting charges much less going to trial and we then know as I know you've noted that there are very few that then result in convictions so then everybody kind of agrees that that's a problem the the real test for me for this to be anything other than a zeitgeist moment that doesn't result in change which is what I would like to see is whatever the next step is and so far anyone you and I'm going to give a couple of ideas in a sec (laughs) but so far anyone you talk to even really passionate advocates for you know fixing this system don't go to anything because they don't actually know what the hell it can be, and and I understand that because it's this is a hundreds of years worth problem because you're butting up against as you noted the the presumption of innocence. So how do you change it? It becomes you know that awful phrase that Peter Dutton used. It becomes one version of events versus another person's version of events. How do you overcome that? I've got two ideas. Um, one, well both of which are probably controversial, irrespective of where you sit on this, but they're ideas that I think can be thrown into the melting pot of ideas and see what happens. The first one that I think is the most likely one that should be followed is that unlike other, in all legal matters, if somebody's facing a murder trial or armed robbery, uh, you are not allowed to bring in evidence of past allegations against them, you know, uh, or, or even past attempts at convictions uh, and in some cases you can't even bring in at all their past convictions uh, about things. Now that is something that you know is, is there in law for a very obvious reason that you've got a jury or a judge to decide specifically on the matter before them about whether there is or isn't enough evidence beyond reasonable doubt to convict somebody. I understand that that's been the legal process forever and a day. One option might be that specific to sexual assault allegations that if they're Uh, is a pattern of behaviour because we know from the research that most people who are considered to have have engaged in a sexual assault do it more than once. So maybe you can bring that evidence in. However, if you bring that evidence in, maybe the quid pro quo is that the sentence um, can be reduced by the judge at the point of sentencing uh, upon a guilty verdict. But at least it might bloody well lead to more guilty verdicts um, from perpetrators who have got a pattern of behavior. That's one idea. I don't know what scholars would think to it. Another one is just a a more simple adjustment. Dump our adversarial system for an inquisitorial system a la what the French do specific for sexual assault crimes because they do have higher conviction rates than we have Uh, and that is just one idea. Stick to our adversarial system, it's the bedrock of our democracy and our legal system but perhaps go to a system that has been proven internationally to work better for sexual assault around an inquisitorial system that puts all the power of investigation and questioning and witness calling essentially in the hands of the judge. The most radical idea that I've got, which I suspect is unlikely, but it's almost a last gasp desperate bid to get some guilty verdicts in cases that are more contentious, if I could put it that way, the kind that often may not even result at the moment. In charges been laid, much less a DPP deciding to get to trial, maybe you could also have civil tests for sexual assault convictions. However, because it's not beyond reasonable doubt, because it's the civil test of on balance of probabilities, you would probably have to take incarceration off the table. I don't, th- I, I couldn't imagine it being okay to incarcerate a man or a woman on a balance of probabilities conviction. Uh, I think that would be a denial of our entire legal system. But it would at least be able to result in contentious cases where at the moment the alleged perpetrator just always goes free. At least in that structure, the alleged perpetrator would get some sort of mixture of heavy fine, heavy community service, um, suspended sentence, so that if we get back to the idea of a repeat offence, that then that does increase their jail jailability. Um, but something like that I think would at least also help. Now, these are just my random ideas. I don't have a law degree. I haven't spoken to any lawyers. <laughs> I've just sat down and thought really hard about this in the context of everything that's been going on. Uh, and my real toing and froing between feeling like something has to change, but also feeling like uh, I want I, I want us to avoid trials by media and all the rest of it, as we've seen in some respects. I think those are three interesting options and i agree well I, I think they are and i agree I think they are and i agree and I, with you just sorry just just, just to finish i know I, I totally agree with you that there is no movement by the government towards any of this debate but i don't think they're um belligerently opposed to it i just don't think that they are giving any signals of action which i think but is probably the, bloody the point that we agree on
0: they're the bloody government at a time when half the population is in a rage And I do wonder whether the Attorney General, because of the issues that have been raised against him, which are now going to go to a defamation hearing, whether he's in a position to uh, lead that to the Commonwealth. Of course course he's not.
1: Of course he's not. And as you say, I mean, one of the issues is, yes, sure, state v. Commonwealth in terms of where the law sits. I, I don't buy that rubbish for a minute because at the end of the day when governments want to act, particularly under our federal system that does put so much power in the hands of the Commonwealth or this supposed new national cabinet that is meant to be giving us a level of cooperation where they can all get together and actually do something collectively. I don't buy that as an excuse, not for action. But you're right, Hugh. Whatever, wherever the truth does or doesn't lie, wherever Christian Porter's defamation case does or doesn't go from here, whether or not there's an independent inquiry, uh, the problem that he's got, fairly or unfairly, is that because of what he's been embroiled in there is no uh, realistic chance of him leading a change like this so that's a problem you wouldn't that, that, I think it's easily overcome by the way I think that the government should swiftly move to set up uh, a, some sort of body uh, I mean it certainly doesn't need to be a royal commission but some sort of body that comes up with Law reform ideas in this space. I mean, we do have the but, law reform commission. But who's reform going to commission. do it
0: if it's? Yeah, I get that. But who's going to do it if it's not the Attorney General? Do you stand aside the Attorney General so that this work can be done, or do you somehow make it the Ministry of Minister of Women, Maurice Payne, give her the job to drive a law reform
1: process? I'd put it outside of parliament altogether. I mean, I, the, the parliament... I mean, look, this is irrespective of whether you think the Attorney General can or can't continue on. There's lots of arguments to suggest that he shouldn't. Um, there's lots of arguments to suggest uh, that there's a problem if he doesn't, given, you know, that he denies the allegations. We'll see where all of that goes. That's its own debate. On this issue, there's no doubt that he can't lead it, I would have thought. <laughs> um, but I, I actually like the idea of it being taken away from the parliament altogether and then come back to the parliament with a series of recommendations. And guess what? Unlike so many recommendations, this time it'd be nice to see them actually then seriously consider enacting them. But this is its own problem, Hugh. You know, parliamentarians are the ones who consider ideas for legislative change and then vote for or against them as a government, as an executive, as a parliament. But parliamentarians, frankly, don't exactly fill me with confidence as being, you know, the great minds of our time, considering how to make such weighty reforms to a legal system that has been both so functional for so many centuries, yet so dysfunctional on the issue of sexual assault. Uh, I'm not filled with joy as I work my way through the 227 names that sit between the Senate and the House, that they've got the intellectual acumen to come up with uh, solving such a wicked problem as the issue of how to deal deal better with sexual assault allegations and outcomes.
0: Well, they're going to have to rise to the task because it's a pressing one. We're going to take a a very quick break. Uh, PVO, a lot more to discuss. (laughs) Stay with us, folks.
1: G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat.
0: Welcome back. This is uh, episode 88 of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm Hugh Rimmington, the Professor Peter van Onselen.
1: Is it, just the- me? is it just me, Hugh? I mean, I know we're going to move on to other subjects, but have we managed, you know, in, in 15 minutes to actually come up with some ideas worthy of debate? Uh, well in you 15 have. years <laughs> yeah i guess you haven't said whether you agree or disagree with them i haven't said whether i agree or disagree with them but at least at least put the stuff on the table for god's sakes you know that's the i, yeah, I, I, I do mean, think
0: it's funny because i was talking to a young woman in the office um who uh was really upset about um the scenes coming out of uh, out of these marches mm. and and her own sense of vulnerability when she goes out and these sorts of things you know um Uh, i'll move on to some thoughts from there but she was really just surprised and dismayed to learn that if you were to go up against someone who might have a history of sexual assaults on other people that that can't be introduced as it currently stands uh before a sentencing phase into a case that might arise against her in other words her lawyers can't say, look at this guy. He's doing it all the time. Now he's done it to, you know, to, mm. you know, to the complainant in this case, because the law says each kind of case is almost discreet from all other previous things um, because it doesn't want to prejudice, you know, the, mm, mm. the ruminations of the jury and so on. And she was dismayed by, by that. So I, I think there might be certainly that, that that's attractive.
1: Yeah. And that, yeah, that was, and that was the first one, wasn't it? So, I mean, that's yes. that there's something in that and, you know, if the if the quid pro quo is that it results in a in a lower sentence but still an incarceration, um, I think a lot of uh, survivors, um, people making the allegations, would 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 be satisfied to get an outcome. I mean, uh, this is a different matter. We don't have the time to go into it in any detail. But when I was on a year eight school camp, uh, a teacher uh, attempted to sexually abuse me, and I, it took me many years before I even realised that's exactly what it was. But then decades later, I found out that three other school students from that school camp made allegations that they were sexually abused by this teacher. I got called by police on it. Um, My evidence became important to his ultimate conviction. Uh, He ended up pleading guilty because the evidence became overwhelming enough through weight of numbers, Hugh, and this is my point, for him to be forced to accept um, what he did rather than put those three then-children on the stand so many years later as adults to have to try to argue the case. He ended up pleading guilty. I didn't have to end up giving evidence um, of what he tried to do to me, but didn't actually happen. But I would have, uh, the, 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 the prism of, had I been making an allegation about what he tried to do to me on my own without three other people having said it was actually done to them uh, and then being cross-examined by his barrister about my recollection from all those years ago, et cetera, I can only, and, yeah, and, and that's you know, an instance where it didn't actually happen as opposed to actually did uh, in the case of, actual, of sexual assault survivors. Uh, that, that would be both harrowing, something that you would shy away from, uh, and I entirely understand the sense that the legal system doesn't support people feeling that way. I do also understand the presumption of innocence, so I want to protect that vehemently as, a, as an issue. But I think there are ways around it, Uh, and and perhaps that lesser sentence is one of the ways around it um, in terms of bringing past practices into it. This particular pedophile, because that's what he is, he's been convicted, he got a lesser sentence by pleading guilty earlier, and that's something that's already available in the system, but only in a situation like the example I had, where there's a weight of numbers that resulted in him pleading guilty to a lesser sentence. Had it just been my word against his or one of the three boys who actually was abused, I, d- I don't doubt he would have gone to trial, or it, may not, or it may never have even gone to trial, much less getting the guilty outcome.
0: There's an interesting detail, there, which I don't think people have known, is that uh, had it gone to trial, you'd have been a witness uh, for the prosecution in a, in a sexual assault mm. uh, case, a case of pedophilia, no less. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things you suggest in that is that w- one of the key things that whatever reform is going to attempt to do is it must remove a sense of impunity on behalf of men, uh, particularly who are uh, serial or recidivist sexual assaulters. Um, you know, because if you think you can get away with it every single time, because you sort of somehow sub yeah. if if somehow or other your, you know, your crimes... Uh, even if there's not a successful conviction, but uh, but essentially the allegations against you are being kind of tallied up to the point where the judge says, "Well, come on uh, or a jury says, "Well, come on, you know we're seeing a pattern here then then that itself might be a deterrent and remove the element of impunity and might result in fewer sexual assaults and all of yep. that is to good, the po- good good, presumably. good
1: point and, and and I think that's why it's that's the first sort of option I think um when thinking about this is the the first Potential option for reform, and let's see opponents shoot it down because you want to hear the best arguments for and against it, but I, I do think the first option for reform has to be finding a unique way for sexual abuse cases to allow someone's past allegations or actions to factor in, even if there is a, a, a judicial outcome that that also is then therefore factored in to the nature of a sentence vis-a-vis a guilty verdict. Um, it would be helpful But I would welcome, you know, (laughs) finer legal minds than ours, Hugh, uh, telling us why that can't be done, and then let's have the debate.
0: Doesn't take much to have a finer legal mind than mine, I can tell you, (laughs) but let's get to the politics of it. Ditto to that. Because there's a great line in a Phil Curry article in the Australian Financial Review in which he says that coalition MPs are now spooked by... This sign that women are genuinely outraged over what's going on because they had thought that it would be contained only to tertiary qualified women. But now ah. they're seeing that it's reaching out into the suburbs and is actually a thing. And you look at it and you go, what? What? So, <laughs> so, so the, so the quiet Australians tertiary, are interested in this. Absolutely, <laughs> but the views that oh, Don't worry, you can imagine the conversation going on. i made a bit worried about all this uh, noise going on. The bloody Sheilas are up at arms over this stuff. And oh, don't worry, mate. It's only the tertiary qualified women. We don't need to pay
1: any attention to it. <laughs> but, but but Hugh, but Hugh, the, if the quiet Australians are speaking up, I mean, you know, won't the quiet Australians just shut the up? Uh,
0: that must be the that must be their attitude. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it just such an appalling insight into the notion?
1: It's so funny, though, Hugh, because it, it, it's the number of times as a rhetorical device you hear um, government MPs, ministers, the prime minister refer to the quiet Australians as feeling this way or that way. Now, if, the, if, if this is right, and I suspect it is, that the quiet Australians are, are finally you know, letting their voices be heard a little bit on, on, on this issue. Uh, well, you know, now, now suddenly he wants them just to shut up and go back to being quiet.
0: Uh, I mean, again, let's get down to the dirty politics. I- I'm not seeing evidence. It's a p- appalling speech from um, Scott Morrison in the Parliament. For the first part, it sounded all right, in which he was giving a modest and humble reflection of the people outside the Parliament House. And then he goes off on some weird tangent saying, oh, you know, there are countries, you know, where people get shot for this sort of stuff. They get met by bullets.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> i'm certainly not gonna I'm, I'm not i'm not gonna defend it um at all not even remotely it's so you, you look at his tone deaf um yeah we, we we've, we've all been there you know you can sometimes think that you're making a valid point and people either misunderstand it or perhaps you don't deliver it as well as possible that was but this wasn't well, yeah, off yeah, the yeah, cuff he was reading
0: know. off notes so this is something they thought was the appropriate response.
1: To I'm deliver getting to that to the parliament. I, I'm getting to that. <laughs> I just, the, 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 the problem here is, you know, this generic idea that we're all grateful if we stop and think about it, that we live in a democracy, which is peaceful and allows for peaceful protests and exchange of ideas, uh, which perhaps isn't always as, Um, open to those exchange of ideas on either side of debates as it should be but nonetheless we live in a country where we don't get shot we don't get incarcerated for having an opinion etc etc if the worst that can happen to us in this country is that people go berserk at us because they don't like what we say uh, that's not too bad you know that's pretty damn good frankly Uh, you and I wouldn't be doing what we do in a whole bunch of non-democracies worldwide we'd be in jail if we've still got our lives. However. And I think that was his broader point. However, the way he delivered it was a debacle. And the fact that it was scripted and he'd actually thought about it and thought it was a, a good point to make, was that's just bizarre. I mean, it's one thing if he'd, off the top of his head, come up with it and stuffed it up, but to actually strategically plan for it, that, that actually, it, look, yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, but it actually really surprises me that, that they're that bad. To be honest, um, well, I mean, Albanese, how so absurd!
0: Not so much a tin air as a concrete wall, and a, you know, <laughs> getting to the sense that nothing gets through to the sky.
1: And and and, and I know he didn't mean he, he genuinely didn't mean you're all lucky that we're not that you're not getting shot out there. But that's what it sounded like. But that's what it sounded like. That's and you know the fact that they've pre-planned this presumably in a a bit of an Algonquin round table um, in the Prime Minister's office and come up with that into his speech.
0: Boy. Man, there was more there was more wit round the Algonquin round table yeah. <laughs> on, <laughs> on any given lunchtime than there is in that <laughs> time sometimes. Oh man uh look just on this it is political I wait for this uh sign of energy coming from the government that they're interested in reform I I, I might wait for a while but because it is political um it seems to me as if what could happen at any time is that um because we because we know it's acknowledged on both sides that uh, there are allegations that are essentially sitting brewing on the Labour side of um, we don't know any circumstances or details of it with the Prime Minister saying, you know, we're all living in glass houses. Uh, Albanese saying to the House, uh, we've all got to do better, a kind of an acknowledgement that uh, that uh, that things have not been perfect on the Labour side in terms of sexual assault, perhaps in the past. Um this is the kind of thing which, if some of these things start landing, um, it just gets into a whole mess of argument you know, going on. Uh, how likely is that?
1: Yeah, well, look, I, I think it's very likely that we'll see examples on the Labor side as well. But you know what the really good news out of this is? Once upon a time, and this is still the case on a myriad of other issues, but once upon a time, if one side of politics was under the gun for something, if evidence emerged that the other side had similar Um, skeletons in their closet then that would result in the issue being swept away and that's the end of it because it's a pox on both your houses so to speak now I don't see that as being the case here and that's where Anthony Albanese's response has been good to the reports uh, which may be the beginning of reports about you know problems on the labour side it seems to be that this is out in the open the public and indeed as you say the quiet Australians the mainstream are onto this Uh, we'll see if it stays there and, as I say, if it leads to reform. But in the partisan space, the good thing is that if allegations come out now on the Labor side, Labor is clearly in no mind to sweep this under the carpet. I think what you will see in Labor is that they will take it on on, head-on and probably act in a way that you would argue is a more swift response than what you're seeing on Scott Morrison's side amongst his own personnel, uh, which will only add pressure to the government to to act and do more. I think that's what we will see on the Labor side. And that is helped along, by the way, I think, by the fact that Labor does have, essentially has a gender parity in its ranks and in its leadership ranks. The Liberal Party doesn't have that. You can't really imagine in the leadership team a Penny Wong or a Christina Keneally saying, you know what, there's a few blokes that have done the wrong thing in our ranks. Um, That's put the sunshine back on us. Let's move on. Uh, Not a chance that that's going to happen, particularly then throwing Tanya Plibersek. She may not be in the leadership team, but she was, of course, Bill Shorten's deputy, and uh, she has ambitions herself to lead, one thinks, and she's one of the senior women in the ranks. So those three women, Plibersek uh, alongside Kinelian Wong, um, apart from the fact that they have gender parity roughly in their parliamentary ranks, and someone like Sally McManus leading the ACTU on top of that with the, the, the power of her resolve, uh, labor and the trade union movement, as an extension of labor, I don't think is of a mind uh, to say, "Oh well, we'll protect our bad eggs." Far, far from it.
0: Well, it remains to be seen whether anything actually comes out of the energy mm. that's swirling around. Whether it's one of those storms that breaks and fades, I suspect it won't. There is a demand for some action, um, but uh, we'll, you know we'll, we'll watch the space. If nothing else, the uh, the, the, the knock to the poll for the government might be uh, the one message that uh, Scott Morrison listens to. We're out of time, PVO. We've got the WA election. We've got the uh, stalling of the AstraZeneca vaccine going on in Europe and the implications for our roll-up. We've got the Quad to talk about and what that might all mean in terms of foreign policy in our region. We haven't got to any of it, but uh, <laughs> that can all wait for other times. PVO, great to have you back.
1: Likewise. Good to chat you. You have been
0: listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.